It's evolved significantly. So basically all of Ethereum is that community thinks I'm the crazy person, but I think that and kind of shut us out quite a bit, like just completely gone. A lot of good friends too, because I just didn't, I couldn't make sense of so many things. But now you're starting to see folks get more interested when you're at conferences. They're like, all right, yeah, it's really, it has engineering respect from most of the Ethereum community. I welcome everybody back too. If you guys want to be buddies again, I'm, I'm a kinder human now that we've gone through the pains of rewriting everything from scratch. That was Nate Geyer, founder of Mintbase. I really enjoyed today's conversation because Nate is one of those people that you really have to admire because of their raw honesty and humility. Today, as always, we dive deep into the origins of Mintbase. Nate has a lot of war stories to tell, ranging all the way back from launching on Ethereum on 2018 and migrating to Nier very early in 2020. Along the way, we get to learn a lot about technical concepts, which is interesting because Nate is an OG hardcore engineer and I'm more on the muggle side. But together, I think we finally get to deconstruct and explain a lot of concepts that may be useful for the average user. Things such as indexers and storage, amongst many others. Overall, you're in for an absolute classic. Without further ado, let's jump right into Nate's story. I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did. Bye. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, I am thrilled to have with me Nate Gaillard. Nate is a co-founder of Mintbase, who's been pioneering in utility NFTs since 2018. Mintbase is often referred to as the Shopify of blockchains, and most recently, even as the Shopify of Shopify's, alluding to its ability to enable anyone to not just deploy their own marketplaces, but also to build their own marketplaces. Mintbase was originally deployed in on Ethereum in 2018 and started migrating to Nier as early as 2020, rewriting the entire code base in Rust. In the process, Mainbase has been a core contributor to Nier, including the development of the NFT standard and onboarding a lot of people. Welcome, Nate. Hello. Is that a good introduction? I got a bit yes, carried perfect. away. Like I've read so much. Nailed it. Yep, that's that's about it in a nutshell. <laughs> If you're a long-time listener of the podcast, you'd know that so many of our guests have one thing in common, and it is that a lot of them, especially the early OGs, were onboarded by you. So I guess that in that sense, you're like the grandfather of the OGs. So on behalf of the entire new ecosystem, thank you. Yeah, I definitely got a lot of get off my lawn in me. So I'm hoping to switch from a disgruntled get off my lawn man to more of, oh my God, we finally built it. Let's use it for good. <laughs> nice. We definitely have a lot to cover given that one year in crypto is about 10 years in the normal world. And your journey started back in 2018. I'm assuming that if Midbase was live on Ethereum in 2018, you've actually been building and the crypto space for a lot longer. So... Maybe let's just dive right in. Maybe tell us how you got into the wonderful world of crypto and how the journey on Ethereum started, especially. I'd like to hear more about like the crypto ethos at the time, like the early days of Ethereum and maybe how it has evolved. So this is my third bear cycle. I'm actually weirdly comfortable in a bear cycle. It's just where a lot of the hype this, hype that, oh my God, this sold for a gazillion dollars. Oh, that kind of stuff goes away. And the attention goes back to, wow, here's the innovation. So it started as, 
building my first company and my CTO mined his first Bitcoins in 2013. So then I bought my first on Coinbase in 2014 as the market was crashing and then essentially got sick of the scaling conversation and saw Ethereum was a buck 14. It was like, cool. And then when 2017 happened, I was able to put all the stuff in storage, travel the world and focus on building random stuff. That's when I started building all these weird little Ethereum apps. One of them was like to jot. It was a basic Ethereum app where you basically tweet to yourself every day as like a, a record and you incentivizes you to, to tweet. And if you don't tweet, then your money gets contributed to like the Trump foundation or something you really don't like. So it really pushes you to do the thing. But then I realized just that the gas fees were insane at that moment. So really trying to understand what to build was a process. Fast forward, then we lived in a land where it was just mintable and open sea and super rare in us. Uh, we started doing our thing and Rarible saw us doing our thing and they copied exactly what we did. We were ahead of everything, users, features, all the different bits. But then we were in the, the NFT NYC, we were doing the ticketing for them a while back. And it, there was just a moment where all of a sudden it was $200 to deploy a store, not two bucks. We did a hard look at ourselves in the summer of 2020 and said, okay, this isn't where things are going to head and then move to the near land. That's the really quick, super high over, overview, but there's a lot of interesting details in between. That's awesome. You mentioned that your CTO is mining Bitcoin, so you're not, you don't have an active te technical role currently, but you are able to code. Everything. I'm still coding. Look at my GitHub. There's still little dots all over the place. The first part of Mintface, the first two years, it was just Carl and I, self-funded. Cranking, we did Metacartel demo day tickets. We did NFT NYC tickets. We did Kong. We built this all sorts of stuff for all the communities. And then, yeah, it was all just her and I. Design, development, no outsourcing, all self-funded. And then we went through the horrendous cycle of fundraising, which I don't put that on anybody. It's the most brutal thing a human can go through if you're a technical folk. If you're a business person, they love that stuff. They love talking yeah. about stuff they don't understand. <laughs> so it's... I mean, it's a challenge. To be fair though, congratulations. I know that you guys just secured a new round of funding. I think if I'm correct, uh, 7 million for the team and growth. And there's an yeah. extra 5 million for the grants program. Yep. That's correct. That is so seven, amazing. And the timing we're not getting better actually. <laughs> exactly. It was, we started in September and then the cycle of educating yourself on how to do it correctly. Well, we could have raised in three weeks and we stopped the cycle and we did it, I think the right way, but it took much slower and much, much more painful. But then we were able to pull Coinbase Ventures on board, Libertas, if you don't know Libertas, they're, they're like the biggest VC firm, in my opinion, that no one knows about. They're like the perfect kind. They aren't really flashy. You go to their website, it just says Libertas on it. But they led Axie Infinity and a bunch of other big players. A lot of respect for them. Woodstock led the round and Sino Global. They're just a big ass group of people who saved our butt during our seed. So it's just a massive conversation. That's awesome. I mean, I, I work for Metapult formally and I'm involved with the Ref community board. And despite all the bloodbath on the street, it's actually really reassuring that both teams have run away for at least three years in USD. So it's pretty crazy how fast you have to adapt in terms of spending product development or your token. There's a lot of things that you have to like, just like react to the market. But 
it's good to know that you're able to pay people and that you can keep working on what matters because you need people to build our way into the next bull market. So I guess that you guys would be in a similar position. Yeah, I, I think I'm better in pairs because this is, so if you ever play chess, you ever play chess and then you're moving the pieces around and then there's players that are offense, offense. I mean, I have like the chill and then I go into defense mode and then they come and they attack me and I'm just like, I'm comfortable in that awkward, I'm getting my ass kicked mode. And then that's when we go forward. So we're super slow. No startup VC ever wants to hear that. That's like the worst thing you can hear or have a founder say, we're slow. We're slow on purpose because we, this isn't a, hey, I win the NFT market. It's the only NFT market that's ever going to win forever. This is a whole new internet we're working with. This is a very long game that we're playing. And it's just fascinating how many folks don't understand that this is that. And so in 2017, I got a status. But you look at some of the big ICO groups like Status, the Messenger app, like within a few months of their ICO, they had 200 people. I don't want to over-exaggerate. Definitely over 60. Some are probably in the 150 range. People all working. You ask all of them, what do you do? And they all say, I'm a researcher. They're getting huge salaries to research stuff. And no one knows what they're actually doing. To me, like, I just saw that. I was like, I don't want to do that. That's not what I want to do. I want to build incrementally, hire the right folks at the right time, and, and grow as we're hopefully growing, knowing that this is a very long haul. A fun fact, back in the day, 2016, 2017, there was a co-working space here in Melbourne. It was a blockchain center, basically an open door policy. I was organizing meetups there so I could get a free membership because I was broke. I was just finishing uni. And one of the guys there was like, look, the best way to get around crypto, and he seemed very knowledgeable, was to just hang out on discords and just get to know people. So I actually got to know the status team and I missed out by a couple of days, their launch party post-ICO in Singapore. I was going through Singapore and they invited me to a barbecue and I got their early day airdrop, which I sold way too early, but at some point would have been worth like $15,000. And it was a really interesting early glimpse of how approachable the teams in the space are, but also how that it is much easier to build awareness and a brand and hype than it is to build a real product. And it was just interesting to me that post-ICO debacle, even though they already had the money, I never heard back from them. And there's obviously many challenges there. It's not just a team of the product, but also building within the Ethereum, which is why I'm also so impressed that you guys had the foresight to pull the trigger early because it takes time to build in a different ecosystem. And even though it may have taken two years for people to realize that it was painfully expensive on Ethereum, you guys already have that head start elsewhere, so. Yeah, there's, I think there's two different types of blockchain projects. There's the ones with the super fancy homepage with all the crazy graphics and no app that click here to sign up or an app that they hide because nothing's automated. It's all like one person or there's the shitty landing page and the click here to log in, go to the actual app world. So we all, we've almost always had a shitty landing page. But now we're in this beautiful time where we're shifting over to, okay, now we have the time, the resources, let's, it's time to build that fancy landing page. So getting there. I feel like I have to apologize. Not really. I, I think it was a timely comment by a committed member of the community, but I think I shot on Mintbase UI, <laughs> UI UX a couple of times publicly. 
And it's not amazing. It's the hard part is the indexer and the endpoints and exposing those things. The easy part's the, the front end. So we're getting there. <laughs> but I think we're constructing it the right way because I'd say that the hard part, it's not the indexer or the front end. The hard part is being able to recruit a team that is able to cover all areas. It is much harder to recruit technical people and having a technical lead even though it may lead to slower development times and whatever the case it may be, even just like not being able to communicate the vision as clearly actually leads to a solid product. Because I was going to ask, mm-hmm. I don't want to shit too directly on people, but maybe the status team, they were more on like the business side and not the, the leadership's not builders perhaps. Probably. I think we're in this same sort of phase as, which is really hard. Like when you're raising funds, the, a lot of the blockchain VCs still want those web 2.0 like business types, right? We're in this phase where you don't have to be a genius to create a company on web two. Like it's the cloud. We understand how cloud works. You can hire engineers who probably know how that stuff works. It's not that big a deal, but in the early days of the internet, when like every decision you're making is like crucial, like should we build a React library like Facebook? Facebook was created by a developer, Google, a developer, MySpace, business people. That didn't work so good. I honestly believe we're in the same sort of phase in blockchain where like I'm making decisions all the time, who to partner with. Like my inbox is filled with, hey, integrate with this, integrate with that. Or a VC is saying, hey, work with our partner. Like they do great work. And I can just look into it and not waste anyone's time and say, that's probably bullshit. Let's focus on this stuff. Like it's, it's really complicated. All these decisions. If a developer comes to me and says, Hey, it's going to take an extra two months to build an indexer versus just directly querying an RPC back and forth and building our database. I would probably go with the RPC focus. And then there goes two months of wasted work because I want it cheaper and quicker, not realizing that the indexer path is hundred percent the right choice and try explaining an indexer to business graduates. It's really challenging. Actually, it's been explained to me and I think I grasp it. But if you had to explain the difference between the RPC node route and and what an indexer does on blockchains, how would you simplify it as much as possible in a few sentences? Yeah. So the indexer is basically a fire hose, right? It's just a fire hose where like data is just flying out of every single block. And then we're over here going, let's organize it in a way. That makes sense for our interface. Like I own five tokens from this contract. Show it to me real quick. Like uh, that's one way that you can do the indexer on the RPC call. Show me who owns this token really fast. Okay, great. You can either build your database based on like constantly going through cycles every day through con jobs to like align stuff, or you can directly hit the functions within a smart contract. And then you start getting into tricks of, oh wait, what if I want all the tokens by this user that were minted in the last three days? Then you're going to your smart contract going, shit, I need to create a function that returns some stuff that organizes things in a date allocation. And you just can't use your smart contract as an API. You have to build your interface. And if you fuck up somewhere, you have to go, okay, let's go back in time, start at this date and then rebuild your stuff. And so that's what blockchain is. It's just this ability to like query the system at any moment in time. That's, that's, that's what it is. And it's, it's not easy. Nice. Yeah. I, that is very much in line with what I understand. So I I think with the RPC notes, you basically, it's called querying the blockchain directly every time, which is much more resource intensive. 
with the indexer, the indexer basically pulls the entire blockchain history and enables you to engage with that data. And it is immediately available, like a higher level of abstraction. So it's just faster and much more efficient. I believe that's what the graph does over yeah. at, on Ethereum. They're meant to be expanding to near. Is that available yet? I know that Infura yep. is expanding over as well. And there's one more thing you can do. You can actually have subscriptions where you build your database from subscriptions, but then sometimes your subscriptions fail or your service fails. And you, how do you get back in time to redo and you just miss time. And now you have to go back through all the blocks. It's a nightmare. Uh, the graph. Yeah. We were early users of the graph. If you go to the graph's website, you'll actually see a mint based logo in there on the top, like five showing. We were there every day in the discord server, like saying. On Ethereum or near? On Ethereum. Nice. So we the first time I built Mintbase was the subscription route. Then I rewrote everything using the graph, which offloaded all that work to them, but it was always breaking, but we worked together and we got the thing running. And then on near, they weren't on near yet. So we just had to build our own indexer, basically forking the near Postgres open source indexer and made it our own system. But last I checked, they are doing smart contract factories where on Mintbase, we have a contract factory and everyone deploys their own smart contract. So eventually we can go into why that's important. I think it's the critical under the most important note of what makes Mintbase Mintbase. But yeah, I don't think that they do. Like on Ethereum, they have these templates where you're able to track all of your contracts and then organize the state in the way that you want it to work. And then, but I don't think they, they do, they're doing that. But it's neat because you can actually use the graph on near for your store. So let's say someone goes, oh, Nate's not indexing or Mintbase isn't indexing the correct stuff. I would like to create my own endpoint that indexes my stuff in, in its own way. If people wanted to check the compatibility of what the graph offers on near and what their technical requirements are, I'm guessing that they can just go directly to like the graph Discord or do they have any resources for near specifically? Because I know they can get uh, quite influenced. I know that they have the interface system. Yeah, I'm assuming if you hop in there, they definitely have an interface where you can see other near graphs. Luis Microtrip uh, built one recently and yep. Nice. So um, I just want sure. to go back to the building slowly because I think I can recognize some similarities with the near ecosystem itself and its approach to taking the time to deploy, but something that is going to stand the test of time and having the vision to go for technical solutions that may not be obvious at the time, and they may seem over the top or too ambitious, but it is building that core layer for the future of the internet. And arguably Nier has also missed every bull run, <laughs> but they keep shipping and you can see how it's a builder's ethos and vision. And I agree with you, despite the fact that I'm officially poor. I like that we're basically burning down the forest and see what is still standing because a lot of that core ethos of near in March, 2020, 2021 was completely different to what we have now. And even through the marketing doubt, I've been much more stringent on the applications that we get, not necessarily because the current applications are bad, but because I feel that the ecosystem has evolved and we're not doing a good enough job at communicating the technical capabilities of the network and it's showcasing the people building on the network. Like we need to like up our game to really communicate. Like I see so many tweets about these technical challenges in other blockchains and I'm like, have you guys heard of Mirror? 
<laughs> so yeah, I'm wondering how you relate with the Nier team in that building slow space. And I guess that could be a segue to how did you find Nier at all? What were your first impressions? I've got the Nier Meerkats as a hot topic there. That I yeah, so I'm a developer. I've been developing almost every day besides it's just relentlessly since 2007 started in Flash. I thought Flash was the future and it went from ActionScript 2 to ActionScript 3. I was yelling at everyone saying, oh my God, this is like, why would you build your stuff in HTML? That's garbage. Then the, the iPad came out and completely obliterated Flash. And then we moved to Node.js back in its early 0.6 days. And then moved from jQuery to Angular to React. I've seen like technologies come and go. And there's two different types of developers. There's the ones that are always looking for the next thing to make their lives easier and less painful. And then there's the legacy people who those that work at major corporations that work on PHP that are just like, this is my job forever. I'm not a star developer. I don't care. I go home at five o'clock. I work on PHP all day and that's what I do. So would you say that there's even a conflict of interest there as in the interests are like diametrically opposed? Because I know that there is a language. I don't even know the name is. Cobalt? It's one of the main banks used here, like mainframes. Yeah. And I know that there's a bizarre situation where no one learns Cobalt today, but the core infrastructure of the banks rely on Cobalt. So you've definitely senior engineers earning outrageous amounts of money for a system that is outdated and they can't maintain. So exactly. if you work at a large company and you have this legacy infrastructure, you don't give a crap about the performance of the company and you're still getting paid potentially even more because no one is training in those languages anymore. That's why I think it isn't going to go anywhere. It's going to just find its little spot and it's just going to stay there. So I think we're, so the point of doing all these different languages is you always know what the next world is. And so now I feel like we're in like the three evolutions of blockchain. We have coin came out, oh, value. And then everyone and their mother copied it. You have Litecoin, you have Dogecoin, and then we're in this world. Now we have ETH coming out. And I was like, great, smart contracts. Okay. And then everyone and their mother copied it. All of a sudden you've got Aave, you've got XDAI, which now is Gnosis Chain, and then you've got Polygon and all these different bits. So they're all playing in this line. And I feel like we're now in this third land, which is Wasm. So that's why I chose Nier, is I'm looking at this third land and trying to figure out what the fourth land is. And I'm hoping the fourth land compiles to the third land. So let's say people get tired of Rust and the next language comes out. At least I can compile into this world. And then when we start going into sharding, it nails down this land even more. So in this, I see Solana, Polkadot, Cosmos, even all these different groups. And near to me was the one that solved most of my needs. I need sharding, I need fast, I need cheap, and I need rust or something to go to Wasm. So that, that was my thinking. So just to expand on, that's why you think that Ethereum is going to max out in terms of language development. You think that people are just going to stop learning Solidity and the next wave of growth is going to be either with these future languages, like for people listening that may not be technical, Rust is a very young language. It's what, 2016? What I read is that it is consistently winning like developers' most loved language. I'm sure what the criteria is for that, but it is certainly growing very fast. And that is something that makes me bullish on Near and I guess other Rust-based ecosystems like Cosmos and Solana because we're able to tap into a wider net of developers. Like you don't have to train specifically for blockchain. 
And I love that you have touched on the your theory of the evolution of blockchains. So this is, I'll add the oh, yeah. blog post to the show notes. So if you're listening, there is a really good visualization. Sorry, I'm scrolling really fast. <laughs> <laughs> of the evolution of blockchains and I'm a bit of a visual learner and it really made it like clear for me. Like I said, explained on the first year we've got Bitcoin. I don't know if people would call Bitcoin a proof of concept in the same way that Ethereum is a proof of concept, but it is certainly the first of its category and there was a wave of innovation, which wasn't really innovation. It's just a lot of projects that very much look and feel like Bitcoin with small tweaks, maybe addressing a few things, but no major technological change. Then we've got Ethereum, which I do feel a bit more strongly about it being a bit of a proof of concept. We saw the full touring EVM, the virtual machine concept really gain momentum. And then there's a new wave of projects. What I find really interesting is that in that EVM category, as you've mentioned, there are a lot of players that they seem like they have momentum, but the way that I see it is they're just capitalizing on Ethereum's on-met demand. There's a lot of up demand there because they couldn't scale. Yeah, so definitely. And how that happened is really fascinating. So going to all the conferences that I first started at DevCon 4 in Prague and met a lot of the people and built the company out of Berlin at Fullnode where a lot of these like core developers who built a lot of these chains actually go and meet up. And it was interesting like how every, like the community is everything, right? Everybody was shitting on, on Polygon. All the community core people were shitting on it, like F that. And then you've got, it's just, there were like all these like hot, like layer two is the only way. And then Polygon started with the layer two is Plasma, which didn't work out. Anyways, it was fascinating to see how quick that changed. It was like, all of a sudden the price just, everyone was like, it's unusable. We can't use this anymore. What do we do? And then you saw Polygon starting to pay high-end community managers and just Boom, like that. All of Polygon became a thing. It's fascinating how they did that. And by the way, I posted this and all the AVA people raged really hard. So I will have to say a note. I think AVA's trying to become like the cosmos of EVM where you can compile your EVM and do other stuff. And everyone's like, ah, oh, these idiots who don't know anything. But I'm like, where is it? You only have an EVM on there. Like you, anyone can put in a roadmap. We're going to be able to have WASM later or something like that. But show me what you have now. Like it's, I just, I don't believe in timelines or else anyways. That is so beautifully put. There's a few things there. The first is as a non-technical person and a shared coin maximalist, I may be shifting careers now, but Binance Smart Chain started eating Ethereum's lunch. The Ethereum community absolutely hated it. But the truth is DeFi on Ethereum at the peak of DeFi summer could not scale. And despite all the scams and all the low level copycats and whatnot, Binance Smart Chain was soaring like a motherfucker. Like I had bets with people. In fact, I told the Pulse team to create a market about Binance Smart Chain flipping Ethereum at the same time that we created the market about Ethereum flipping Bitcoin. So I feel like the Ethereum community realized that there had to be a scaling solution and once they made that switch, they decided, look, it doesn't really matter what we pump out. If it is within the Ethereum ecosystem, we'll support it. Yeah. And I'm calling them out. Yeah. That they supported Polygon, like unapologetically, like unequivocally, unconditionally. And now that Optimism and Arbitrum are coming out, they're like, Polygon, who that? I, I just push it aside. And now they're trying to sell you something new. And 
I think that you really need to be critical of these things because if you trust someone to sell you a network and you know that they're being dishonest and they're going to disregard that network when the next new one comes around the corner, you're a builder and there are many builders out there and there are many investors and the users will eventually come. But you have to make a long-term decision about where you place your product. And there it is no long-term. Like... <laughs> There's no long-term thinking in the majority of the community. And the, yeah, the other part that cranked my brain was uh, we're over there like pitching NFT this, NFT that. And a lot of these like high-profile folks wouldn't give us the time of day with yawn. Even Vitalik yawned at me when I showed him my ticket of the demo day. And he was oh, that's neat. And then just looked somewhere else and was like, NFTs, man. <laughs> no one gave a shit about NFTs. And then a year later, all of a sudden, everyone became an influencer expert on it. I don't know. I This is why I'm like that grumpy get off my lawn guy. And I'm, I've just seen so much hypocrisy. And at this point, I'm just in now a new mode where I'm like, cool, we finally have the technology. Now it's time to focus on the positive. Like, it's time to get shit done. Maybe. There is a reason we had to reschedule this podcast four times. <laughs> First time, power outage. Second time, I forgot. I'm really sorry. I'm only human. I've got a calendar mix match. Now that I'm back in Australia, I've got two different computers. Third time, baby duties. I, and I, I love that you actually sent proof of baby. Adorable baby, by the way. Congratulations. Thank you. It's, it's good adorable. to know that we are getting closer to the maintenance line for the population as Elon Musk has been pushing. I'm not doing my bit, but it's good to know that the crypto community is stepping up. And yeah, this is the fourth time. Maybe the reason why we've delayed is that we could feel the real brunt of the bear market because I feel that a lot of the focus initially is on the financial losses. But then we should be entering into the stage of reflecting. Okay, everything went to shit. We get it. Like macroeconomy and the stock market. But there are definitely things within the crypto space that we have to improve if you want crypto to survive the bear market. And weaving these narratives is so interesting because NFTs were massive in onboarding a lot of people and they don't have any context about how the technology has evolved. If you're new to NFTs and you got in NFTs in Solana or Tezos or even Near, and you have no idea about how these blockchains are different or what drives different groups of people, etc., I do feel like they are really valuable, not just in informing, whatever, if you're a user or a developer, but also in providing that vision to stick around through the bear market or even inspire people to become an active contributor. Like not everyone has to be technical. There's many roles. And uh, yeah, I just keep going back to that point of the match made in heaven of main space finds near. I don't know. Did you guys consider other blockchains at the time? Were there other candidates that were like shaping up to be strong L1s? Yeah. Definitely. Deep. I didn't look too deep into Cosmos because I didn't think Go was the future, the language Go. So it was really down between Polkadot and Solana. And so looking at Solana with the single crazy optimized IO idea of let's create a supercomputer. To me, that didn't sit super well, which I have another idea for later on. What if near? so near is sharding, right? So all these validators are running these other things. Why can't we just take their crazy optimized IO and stick them on each shard? Now I have multiple little Solana running around. Anyways, so we have, and then there's Polkadot. I just think everyone deploying their own chain is, and running their own validator sets and all that land is, it's just that, that feels like too much crazy for me. And where Polkadot's really kind of losing steam is where Cosmos 
kicked ass. They created this thing called IBC, which is the, I don't even know what it stands for. Interchain black B breach. Interchain breach communication. Yeah. It's a Cosmos standard blockchain interoperability, IBC. Anyways, it's the thing where I deploy my own chain. I have my own validators. I meant a token on here. All these other guys automatically get that. And I feel like this is where optimism is going to really struggle. This is where Polkadot is currently struggling. They don't have this. I deploy my own chain. I have to use these centralized and secure bridges to move them back and forth throughout the chain. But Nier solves this from the very beginning, which is, hey, here's or three shards, all sharding. Here's Mintbase. Here's Aurora. Here's all these different groups. Anytime we make a transaction happen, it all goes through a single event bus. So our indexers can just capture all the fire hose out of one. So we don't have to use bridges. We can say, all right, token is over here. The other big thing is I really feel like you need your layer one to work. And layer twos are going to be here for small incremental tasks. You can't just move your whole application to another application. That's not a layer two. That's, I don't know. It's just, I don't, why? Like use your layer one as your central, as your main point. And then I see layer twos as being like, cool, maybe Mina chain solves zero knowledge proofs, right? And so maybe we can just use Mina chain for identity for my, for the mint base app. Main mint base app is here and we can outsource little projects on different chains. That's how, that's how engineering works. You don't just keep diving deeper down a non-working rabbit hole. <laughs> I'm hearing layer threes coming on. There's layer twos getting expensive. Let's go. I out. it was a main then. I was like, layer three, what the, yeah. for people that are listening that may not be technical, how would you define a layer two? Like what is a layer two? What is a side chain? Is there any like technical difference or maybe even with some of the examples out there? Yes. Okay. So L2s versus side chains. If you think of what a side chain is like EVM, if you look at XDAI or now it's called Cosmos chain. That's a side chain. You have EVM, you have a bridge that is probably mildly centralized and it goes to just the copy thing. And then same thing with Polygon. Polygon did create an L2. It was Plasma. And that's where essentially you have this direct connection where you can do all these different transactions on a different chain. And then when you move it over it, it hashes the whole thing and sticks it on. And it can be super expensive to do that. So they realize that, and then there's another network called Loom that did the exact same thing. And they all realized that that was not the way. Down to Ethereum. And that's a transaction that is expensive. You would use L1 for the main security layer. That's the big difference between an L2. Optimism is an L2. It's essentially creating its own micro sharding world where you can go and do all, it's like kind of light, Lightning Network plan. Interesting. That's why I keep banging the drum that we're probably not doing enough to promote near. And I understand that as far as the technical roadmap goes, we're still shipping this, like whatever the four stages of sharding and nightshade. But it's just fascinating how when you hear people talk about things, there are issues that people acknowledge that we haven't solved or they haven't solved or they will be dealing with it. So for instance, an obvious one is Ethereum as a mothership. It's cool. It's expensive, but everyone lives there. And there's interoperability between applications. And in general, there's a world of possibility. To ignore the fact that the user experience is variable and that it is very expensive, at least technically, it can all hypothetically come together. 
when you start having all these L2s, you have the problem that these L2s don't talk to each other. And I like that there are a lot of players now doing bridges directly between different L2s and between different blockchains that may solve the challenge of sending assets and tokens between different L2s. But it also highlights the issue of they're not communicating. And once again, if you're a builder, it's very hard to decide where is your application going to live because then you have to decide where the users are going to live. And the savage truth is there are not going to be any users <laughs> if you can never have good enough applications for them to actually use. So you have to ask what is the user experience and how much of the user experience relies on them communicating with someone else. So composability is massive. When you look at the near model and the shards communicating with each other and at some point, honestly, I considered like, is this a scam? Is this too good to be true? Like when they sell it, every time there's an, a, a release, like now it's sharded, developers don't have to do anything. Like you don't have to worry. You don't even know in which shard your application is living. Users don't have to do anything. You have no idea how many shards at any one time exist. It expands and contracts on demand. Well, it will. That, that, that is coming up. That's to me, that's the big selling point between Ana and Nier, right? We're running our own index or mint base with a team of five engineers. We're able to manage that, the front end, and a bunch of other things. And that's our own hardware. Granted, it's not super cheap, but it's not super, super expensive. And as technology improves over time, it'll get, we'll need less resources to do that. The big blocker is how much Nier you need to run a validator, right? So to me, that is a super easily, probably a governance problem to solve that just changes one number to another and how do we elect and especially once we get past a hundred to a thousand to whatever thousand then hopefully we can start running light client nodes or even full nodes on just simple hardware Solana's not going to do that but then again let's play the devil's advocate for solana to be a thing in the future this multi-chain world which i still think we're going to have a multi-chain world maybe we buy our home as an nft on ethereum and we use the bridge to Move things around where I see maybe Solana having a, a super future is maybe Coinbase. They've gone pretty heavy into Solana. Maybe they decide they obviously know DEXs are the future, not their centralized exchanges. Where I see people using something like Solana is let's say Coinbase decides to run their DEX there. And we almost treat Solana as Coinbase. We're like, it's a little less evil than a fully centralized exchange. I'm going to go bridge my stuff to Solana do my quick trades and get the hell out of there as quick as possible and then bridge them back and do your stuff. To me, that's kind of where, but it, they need to quit breaking and stopping. That's really important yes. thing for them to there, figure out. <laughs> there are some technical challenges that they have to deal with from a thread I saw a while ago from one of those crypto researchers at a BC. I'm not sure it can be solved. The something turbine and the proof of history. What I understand is that you can accurately predict the next 32 validators and all you have to do is just bombard those next 32 with DDoS attack and the whole network collapses. And when people say we were getting a million transactions a second, that means there's a lot of users. No, that means that there's people that are maliciously attacking the network. Are they attacking you because you are amazing and because they want to halt your success? Maybe. But if you're not resilient, which is kind of like the whole point of blockchains, then there are long-term issues. Like, I just don't see how much capital you can deploy on Solana if you are aware that it can, if the network itself can be attacked and you can short the network elsewhere where it works, that's game over. Like, it's very hard. I do have friends on Solana. In fact, the last person I interviewed for the podcast is a Solana developer. 
that have been uh, courting to to expand over. But yeah, there, there are some challenges there. Yeah, the main thing you don't want to do is you're in your own glass house and throw it at another glass house. So the one thing Solana has had is they've had the load. Near hasn't really gone through the growing pain. So hopefully, luckily, they saw a lot of their collapsing and and are learning from that. But we'll see once Near gets the full brunt of things, once a Coinbase listing finally comes. How crazy is that? Coinbase was just like, nope, you will not pass. Like the entire bull market, <laughs> it just blocked Near. How is that even... How is that a thing? Yes, I agree with you. And I actually enjoyed the conversation about the RPCs and the indexers because that is the one thing that we have to acknowledge. Every time that we've had heavy loads, the indexers have been the bottleneck. I know that there's been some improvement scenes. We've had some extra players. There's Infura. There's a POKT net network, P-O-K-T. You guys have your own. I know that Rev has their own. Aurora has their own. So there are solutions around it, but yes, you are correct. We're yet Do you know if uh, has their own or are they hitting a Nier's internal stuff? I have no idea. Okay. I know that <laughs> they upgraded their contracts at some point. Now it's an ex Paras contract. And I think mm -hmm. with that upgrade, there may have been some indexer stuff. Yeah. But yeah, don't know. if anyone in the Paras team is listening, help us solve this indexer RPC. So one big happy family. Questions? Um, yeah. There is, I forgot what I was going to mention. There was one more thing about Nier I was going to mention, but I forgot. Anyway, I'd like to jump into a few, I guess, Mint-based specific things that I'm really sure. curious to learn more about who better than the founder and technical lead to ask. So a while back, I read a really interesting blog post. I'm pretty sure it was in the Nier blog. I may have to go back and get it for the show notes. Or maybe I came across it through Figment Learn. I did the Figment Learn track on Near, and I was mind blown. We were talking about the differences between the NEP 171 standard and how it improves on the ERC 721 standard, or it may have been the standard NEP 1 for 1 and the ERC 20 standard. There were some improvements at that base technical layer that already start making Near different from Ethereum. I don't even yeah. recall the blog post. I'm really sorry about putting you on the spot. No, not that. We were, it's amazing. No one, we were, so we moved over and the standard at the time on Nier was the NEP4, which I don't remember what the exact issues were, but they just were not an NFT. It was, there was some like really heavy fundamental flaws. So it's interesting. We have Eugene, what's his, his last name? Eugene the Dream. That's it was Eugene, Mike Purvis, Matt Locke, myself, Thor, and Sparrow. If you don't know her, she's uh, blackbox.art and a, a few other folks that were just really trying to solve this because it was a difference between like us who knew about NFTs and folks that understood Near. Near's a whole different animal than Ethereum. It's a sharded chain. You have different fundamental issues that are laws of physics that are happening. So it was a big challenge to understand but yeah getting the the royalty standard in there was a big one black box really pushed that because ethereum really messed it up yeah, they didn't mess it up it just it made it simple and they did that but then all the platforms messed it up by not having a standard and everyone was complaining OpenSea was cranking through millions of dollars and no one was getting royalties because it was too complex some people were rolling their standards one way and some people were rolling it the other way and on contracts you can't do a whole lot of well if they roll it this way then do some functions this way if this does this way then do some other different functions so it was a process 
So if you had to summarize a specific pain point in Ethereum, the NFT standard came, I guess, later, or it was built on the go. And it basically placed a burden on the exchange to deal with the royalties as they deployed. So I guess that each exchange could do it differently, but also if you transported your NFTs across exchanges, there was just no consistency at all, uh, which leads yep. to the problem that you're mentioning of people just not getting paid or not aging well. I think they've solved it and they've gotten a lot better at it. I've been out of the ETH standard land for quite a while, so I can't really compare what today is. But I mean, it works. We're still having interoperability issues on Near that we're all so close to solving. It's why you're not seeing NFTs from Paras on Mintbase and vice versa. It's just, it's a challenge. So it's why I don't know. If you go on, I haven't messed with Solana, but I'm not sure if they have a truly open ecosystem yet where as long as you follow a standard, you can get listed on any exchange and then things are moving around nice and freely. I know the Metaplex started with this hey, here's the standard fork our system and that's how it works. But then at the end of the day, they just had a bunch of isolated markets. So I'm, I need to do more research on Solana's standard, but I basically, yep. <laughs> Interesting, yeah, because I know that, I guess that if you mint on Paras, your NFT is under the Paras contract because for Near Misfits, first P generative collection on Near. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> we were just talking about that before we started recording. I've got um, one. <laughs> oh, awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll send you another one if you want. Neat. The, yes, we minted to the 10K contract, which I believe is itself a contract factory. So we actually yeah. have our Misfits contract, which enables us to basically be on any marketplace. Both yep. Midbase and Paras were very proactive in getting us listed there. So thanks for that, sir. But yeah, I guess that it gets more complex with the ERC-721. Well, what the fuck it's called? <laughs> the standard of the wealth. So I guess we could just glide over it to a technical move on. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think that this leads quite nicely to the mint-based approach of having people deploy their stores as their own smart contract. And as simple as it sounds for people listening or for myself, like, oh, cool, my store is its own smart contract. I know that there's a lot more reasoning behind it at a technical layer. So yeah, I'd be curious to hear more about that thought process and most importantly, what that enables to people like going into the future. Because I know that it is so early days for both you guys and the people deploying on Midbase. Yeah, imagine us. So we're, we took it one full step to remove ourselves from the equation. So the goal is to not have a Midbase market eventually. And... It's a long process, but when everybody, so imagine pull your own store, Paras has x.paras.near. That's in our brains, that's one store. They own their own private keys. They own how things get upgraded. They own their ecosystem. They built a whole app around it. That's their world. So our world is, hey, you go in, you press new store. It deploys your own contract. That's one. Now we have over 1,160 of these things that are getting created. So you have all these contracts doing all these different, all these different transactions. And we're organizing it in a way where developers from Web2 can just come in using GraphQL to interact with that contract. We're getting to a spot where we're still making the upgrades on each of the contracts as the NEP is still, the 171 is still adjusting over time. And as we nail our system a bit better, 
because if all of a sudden the net 171 changes just so so slightly like it goes from one variable goes from an integer to something else then all of your contracts are out of date so we're in this space where we are in control of all the contracts but eventually we'll within one foul swoop we can switch that so we've been really open. I think Astro is doing a really great job. They had it the same way where every DAO is your own contract as well. And now they're switching it to, hey, you guys have to basically opt into the upgrades. So that's certainly where we're heading. We're looking to them as a good leader in that world. But when you think about it, if you are a stadium trying to do ticketing with 50,000 seats, you're not going to go use someone else's contract because you're at the whim of their stuff. So our goal is if I'm doing stadium ticketing, it's going to be easy for me to deploy a contract and then build off of that. That's really interesting. And it just occurred to me, I know that something unique about Nier as well is that technically the smart contract developer earns some of the fees. Will that still apply to your mid-based store if you deploy as yourself? Or would yeah. base as a factory still be the mothership collecting those fees? No, no, no. Right now, we're basically taking zero fees out of the whole system. Like 2.5% on the market sale, which we don't have a ton of sales. We didn't really get into the PAEFP hype for our own reasons, but it's it's not really a big portion of why we're building this. So we might scale, and we're still trying to figure out why. We know NFTs are going to be massive. Like I said, this is a big, long game that we're playing, trying to figure out we think NFTs and fungible tokens are going to change the world. So that's another big note. We are mint-based, not NFT-based. So if we want to start working with fungible tokens, that's really not that far off of our brains. So we're just trying to react with where the market is. Is it in a spot where we can start building physical redeemers and other people can start building those? We can start checking people into conferences. Then we'll start nimbly moving in that direction. Is it focused on the digital redemption? Are we even here for the, these sort of things? So that's our world. Does that answer your Gosh. question? Sometimes I just start down a path and then I forget where I'm at. Yes. The question was specifically about the owner of the smart contract. Mm-hmm. They get like 70, ah. 30% of the fees. 70% yeah. get burned, 30% go to the owner of the smart contract. I'm not sure in this case whether the story itself would be that owner getting the 30%. I don't know that it's minuscule. <laughs> We're talking about a fraction of a cent for each transaction, but are you looking at the markets? No, I'm uh, I'm going to switch to, can I do a screen share? I think it should be. Can you see the, at the bottom market clip uh, share? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'm just better at showing rather than, okay. So I'm going to go, I'm going to switch to my mint space dot near. Where are we at? So now I'm switching to my other account. So here's all my smart contracts that I own, NFT contracts. We've got my indexer contract with all the buddies that were deploying indexer fun. I think Evgeny is actually loaded on here. But if I go into my settings, so here's my smart contract. We can see the transactions. So they're all nicely organized here. We can see proof of everything that happened on this one single contract. This is the beginning of, okay, I own my own contract. I have my own aggregated queries. But if we come in here, the store owner, which is me, I can come in and get the default royalties for all my minters. So this is the other point of having your own contract. I can actually add multiple minters to it. So if I come in here, you can see here's Bowdoin, Flux, 
role is in there. I can remove mentors. I can add more mentors. I can even transfer the ownership of the store to a DAO, to a different account. If they want to be the one to add the mentors and do all those sort of things. And it's amazing. Interesting is when I actually add other mentors. So if I want to add other mentors and then they come in, I can already automatically have royalties for me as the store owners of my mentors to come back to me. So Claudia has been championing a lot of this sort of stuff on her green NFT stuff. Now it's awesome. Um, for people that may be just listening, Nate was just sharing the backend of the Mintbase UI and all the stores that he's deployed. What I really like is that Mintbase is really built for builders. Like the level of customization about adding mentors, adding different royal displays, transferring the store, it's extremely flexible. And I guess that I'm trying to think of a good analogy of what the smart contract represents and the way that it engages with other things on the digital world, because obviously having full ownership of that, it's extremely powerful. But I have already seen some of the projects that are building on top of Mintbase or using the Mintbase core infrastructure. So I had a really good browse at Gorilla Shop and 3xr.space. Gorilla Shop is a really fun platform that enables you to basically have a new UI. It's really a user-friendly, aesthetically pleasing. And I guess the key value proposition there would be that you can just fully customize it to your brand. So for instance, if I wanted to have an NFT store specifically for the podcast, instead of having my store within the Mintbase page, you could just go to wepodge.nft and it's just my store. All the backend, all the smart contracts, all the heavy lifting, it's still from Mintbase. Gorilla Shop basically just, I guess, reskins how the user looks at things. Yeah, Gorilla Shops has a long way to go. Okay, so Nier, for sure. And when it first launched, basically all Nier was touting for a while was Paras, Mintbase, and Flux. Blah, blah, round and round. Flux, Mintbase. There were only like three real big projects outside the PFP land that were building something important. It took him a year to really, for all of us to build our projects and to actually start getting something of interest. So that's where we're at right now. We've, we're finally getting to a spot where we built the project. Now we have a few of our projects that are messing around and are kind of getting the fundamental ideas of what Mintbase is without us going, paying them and building it. Like Gorilla Shots just showed up and talked with us a couple of times on Telegram. And all of a sudden I'm like, holy crap, that's exactly what this is for. If someone comes in, they say, oh, Mintbase, the storefront looks like garbage. I want to build my own storefront. Knowing that store is not going to change, eventually we'll get it to that. <laughs> but it's a building block, right? It's something that I can say, hey, I'm going to build off of that, knowing that it's not going to change for as long as Nier exists and Arweave exists. That's the fundamental building blocks of where things are headed. Which, which is fascinating because I think that it's an excellent example of builders taking core infrastructure and building on top and getting us to the next step. However, I really like the grumpy grandpa get off my lawn approach because the truth is once you build core infrastructure, the ball is on the other side for people to build with it. And as we've seen with the NFT space, it really is up to each project what they do with NFTs. Is it going to be ticketing? Is it going to be a PFP? Is it going to be one-on-one? There's an infinite number of possibilities that can be done with NFTs. So I guess that not only did it take time to build this core infrastructure, and now I think that you guys should be proud. And I guess NFT community, near community in general, should be proud to have these assets within the ecosystem. 
Now the challenge is for each builder on how to deploy them. Like the example that I gave about me deploying a store for the podcast. It's easy to give as an example, but I do sit sometimes and ruminate about how would it look like? What is the story behind it? What is the purpose? Who would use this? What problem am I trying to solve? It's amazing to know that the infrastructure is there waiting for me when I'm ready, but now it's up to me or any other builder or mentor to do the hard work and make sure that the next layer is also successful. Because it's up to us to articulate it. So we've, you know, engineer land, heads down, build, 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 tweet something out, and then that's it. So the really hard part is how do we articulate all these things that we've built that you can easily come on and build the things you want with it. So that's where our new attention is. So Luis, uh, Microchip is now a head of developer relations. He went from product lead to head of developer relations because that's probably one of our most valuable spots, how to onboard developers easily, better documentation, better examples, better this, that, and the other. So that's, uh, that's our new focus. Hopefully this podcast helps in getting the word out there, especially it's like a weird bridge of like the message. Like it jumps from technical people to non-technical people like myself. I may not be able to build it, but if I understand what it can do, next time I come across an engineer and they're building something that may be deep into the actual technical documentation, I'll be like, Hey, I'm here to be in base. Like maybe they can make your work a lot easier. I'm really hopeful for that. I guess that you guys have a massive asset as well. And as somebody living in Australia, I really can't underscore this enough. You guys are in Lisbon. Portugal, which is, I've heard an amazing city for digital nomads, for crypto, but you're getting NearCon for the second year in a row now. So I'd love to hear more about the crypto community there, whether you guys have been able to connect, leverage that, any opportunities going forward. I am aiming to be there in September. So Nice. Yeah, Lisbon is an amazing spot. Building a company in a different country is very challenging. It is a very, all the different legalities and different, oh my goodness, I can't even explain it. It's just so many bureaucratic blocks and things. I don't know if I would suggest it to new founders if you're comfortable with our act, but overall. Where are you from originally? Portland, Oregon. Oh, nice. We built the company for two years with Carl and I. That's where I met her and was like, all right, this is the epicenter of blockchain here. And then this is, we actually came here because I'm a surfer and I've always wanted to live next to the coast, not because of the crypto taxes or anything else that comes along. That just was the icing on the cake. I think it was just luck. Massive bonus. The taxes were just a massive coincidence. That's amazing. Love yep. that happens. It's one of those, like, you just get bored of California and you're like, where can I find the exact same temperate, the same sort of natural effects and same weather conditions and less people. <laughs> but Portugal seems a lot more laid back as well. Yep. And we've built an amazing team here too. The base, half our team, we've got 12 folks, half are, are Portugal natives, the other half are Brazilian and German. So I've, I was the only American up until a month ago or two months ago. That's awesome. So the everyday language at work, I guess it's a mix between Portuguese and mostly English or? Yep. That's awesome. All over the place. (laughs) And are you guys also hiring remotely or you prefer people to be on site? We've got two positions. I think we're going to fill pretty soon all over the place, anywhere from 
Africa to US again, but we're doing what everyone else is doing. I think we're super lucky. We're able to close our round, have a pretty sane burn rate and not have to do the massive layoffs that you're seeing everyone else. So I don't think we're going to go too crazy with booming and hiring, but yeah, that, that is something that is probably a really good example of how the world is very US centric. The US definitely had a challenge with insane valuations for people raising money, but also insane labor costs. Like the salary that tech workers were fetching was just insanity. So I think- MetaMask poached one of our employees for 150K and I, yeah, we can't roll that way. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at it for Metapool, we're fully distributed, but we've got a few engineers in Argentina, Mexico, Spain, and it's amazing to be able to pay people well like they're happy, they're way above average. And we're extremely competitive. Like our burn rate is like healthy. When you start looking at revenue, it's just a sustainable business model. And if we were in the US, it's just a completely different ballgame. Like you wouldn't even be close to generating revenue. And that's something that I was thinking about a lot. I was like, how does this end? Does everyone relocate overseas to have a lower cost of life? Or obviously we know how it is, everything is crashing. So I guess that there's going to be a recalibration now of salary expectations and whatnot. But it's, it's certainly something interesting. I know that Europe has that strength of combining really good lifestyle and quality of life with relatively low cost. Like Berlin is amazing. I was there for a month in 2018 and 2017. And yeah, it's got a really nice balance between it's still very affordable and it's just fun to be there. It's not like yep. relocating and downgrading your lifestyle. Yep. Agreed. I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah. Salaries are a whole thing. I think I paid myself from mid base less than 10 grand in three years. So it's a process. We're definitely very good on the Portuguese scale <laughs> or actually the global scale. Make sure that you start taking a bit more to get you through the bear market. Now, I've got one thing, I know it's going to be a bit long, but I've got one thing that I'm really curious about, and that is storage. I know that storage is one of those things that we don't really talk about much in the NFT Oh, space. it's so painful. Not having, not being able to create an account that can interact with a DAP without having to pay funds is such a murder. We got enabled by Stripe. And we want to build the old Stripe system back credit card system where every contract gets their own basically card system, but it defeats the purpose if they need near in order to buy, in order to buy something with credit card, even if it's 0 0.01 <laughs> near. So it's a, it's well, a you're talking about storage on near, like for using, I was referring about storage, like where you mint the NFT. I know oh, yeah. you guys use, I actually love our weave. Oh, I have to accumulate more tokens during the spare market. It'd be near an R weave. But I also know that there's been a few other alternatives out there. I know some of the shortcomings about IPFS, and I know that near announced Makina, M A C H I N, a while ago. I'm not sure where they're at in stage of development. So yeah, I'd love if you could expand on the thought process on mean base around storage, how it works with our with, would you recommend it to other people starting today? Yeah. So that's another thing we pioneered. We were the first NFT marketplace that used our weave. So it's just amazing. We started down the IPFS route and then looked into what everyone else was doing, which was like pinata. And then super rare was basically doing their, pinning their own services. And my brain was just like, okay. If we all have to rely on super rare to run a node, 
then how is that different than just uploading it to Google? If we're relying, because if they're not using that, then it goes down. Then all of a sudden the file disappears forever. Your NFT is nothing. It's almost as bad as buying an NFT and the image living on the Dropbox of the artist. Yes. You can't really rely on that centralized party to keep the file there forever. Yana does the same. So we're like, okay, let's just use IPFS. And then the file fetching is crazy. Like right now we're starting to fetch the files from Paras. And you can't do that. You can't just go fetch it and hope it just exists and load your page up. You ping a node. It says, oh, we don't have that. Let me go check these other nodes. No, nope, we don't have it. Let's go check some other nodes. Oh, we have it. Okay, copy, copy, show it on the page. There's your image. It just doesn't work. What you have to do is you have to load the whole page. Maybe that takes a minute or two or three or eight. And then you have to load it up to Google S3. And then after it's in S3, then you... Re, you're downloading just the S3 stuff. So that's the way the current process is. Arnaud's main thing is the data availability is like instantaneous in the millisecond range. So for me, that, that solved that problem where we're currently not doing it that way. And yeah, Arweave, Arweave is just a fascinating system. Has this endowment mechanism where when you upload the file, you're not just paying the miner to bind it. It actually goes into a pool for you to host your thing. And as long as you're hosting it for 200 years is what they say, this pool is going to keep paying these people. This guy's like tired of running it and goes down. Another one can pop up and say, okay, now I want to make that money. And so they're getting paid to hold the files, but also later on to... So if the whole thing dries up, then they still get fun somehow. And so that solves the pinning problem and so on. Our weave is fascinating. It's been a while since I looked into it, but I know that they are both, I think the Solana blockchain, like the history, it's being stored on our weave, which I think says a lot <laughs> about both Solana and our weave, but also they've got some cool, like our weave application, native applications, I guess like an R drive which would be like a decentralized Dropbox. And it's very early days for them as well. I know that they partnered with the Library of Congress to have, is it Library of Congress? They partnered with someone. And now they have yeah. their Wayback Machine. So Wayback Machine was a super cool product. I'm pretty sure it was the Library of Congress where they basically timestamp the internet. So they take snapshots of every website and you can actually go back and see what different websites looked over time. So for instance, when I launched my first startup in 2016, I would actually go into the Wayback Machine and create a snapshot myself, like manually, so that I could actually see the evolution of the landing page, like all the design. It was just a cool way to record history. So it's really nice now that these snapshots of the internet are now being stored on Arweave. Because once again, like if you had to explain why decentralization, this would be a prime example. We've got a snapshot of the internet. And suddenly somebody says, oh shit, what I said two years ago about this really important global topic that coerced a bunch of people, we have to go and get rid of everything that I said that may contradict my new position. I don't think anyone cares about that anymore. <laughs> the way the U.S. is running right now, you get, just like Trump said, you can go out and shoot someone in the head and everyone can film it. You can be like, didn't do it. No, I don't know what I'm talking about. It's it, it, it wild, but... That is definitely an extension of some weird centralization of power where there's just too much power in certain places. So yeah, I guess that at least for the history books. <laughs> Data did a, a series on ours where they uploaded a, bun, a whole 
older old youth version you can probably find it somewhere but where they uploaded all the police violence stories and recorded what the story was so here is a record that anyone can just hit at any time just start wrapping it up i'm just really curious when you guys made the shift so early on from ethereum over to near what was the reaction like within the ethereum community you're we're obviously very close with a lot of teams, like core teams. And how has that evolved now? It's evolved significantly. So basically all of Ethereum is that community thinks I'm the crazy person, but I think that and kind of shut us out quite a bit, like just completely gone. A lot of good friends too, because I just didn't, I couldn't make sense of so many things. But now you're starting to see folks get more interested when you're at conferences. They're like, all right, yeah, it's really, it has engineering respects from most of the Ethereum community. I welcome everybody back too. If you guys want to be buddies again, I'm, I'm a kinder human now that we've gone through the pains of rewriting everything from scratch. The New York community has been good. They definitely wanted us to push to do a token. We didn't feel like we were ready for it. It feels there's definitely been a bit more support for projects that have tokens because the more tokens that are out there, the more push and way you're going to get, you're going to get exchanges. But we just, we want, when we launch a token, I don't want to have, Hey, you have 2000% APR and we're not sure what the token does, but it'll get you something better later. To me, I want to launch a token only if it has utility tomorrow. And that was one of the main reasons of moving to near was because if we launch a token, it's going to be a governance token that does nothing. If so why would I launch a token on Nier that does nothing yet? So we're still in the design phase now that we have the basics figured out. The support obviously has shifted to mainly one project in particular, and we're taking a bit less. But I think a lot of that surrounds around our interoperability, and we're getting better on that every day. So we're cranking along bit by bit. I really admire that sort of like builder ethos just like general ethics and like sticking to mission and as you were talking this i guess it may be like a meme but maybe there's like a message or a hidden truth there i don't know if you've seen the memes where i don't know whatever somebody says something and then somebody's oh you're like what do they do to you or who hurt you or something like that there's usually like a very strong event or trigger that sets someone in a direction so I can definitely see the event within the Ethereum community, but I think that you obviously already had that commitment to building and doing the right thing. And I guess just going against the crowds and being willing to tell the masses to go shove it. So I'm wondering if you have to go a bit further back, like where does that come from? There's a very strong drive there that you can feel it and it just keeps you on pace. And it's really rare actually. Yeah, nobody tells us what to do. We don't owe anybody anything. We think that we have a real chance of changing the future and you really have to stick with your guns and your guts to to do that. And it's a mission. Everybody wants you to do different things, different ways. Like raising funds with that ethos was horrible. Like we have a really amazing group of investors that have seeing that that's how we operate and they've stuck with us from both the seed and the A and some new investors. But yeah, it's really challenging convincing people what we think is going to happen two years from now. So everyone really looks into the absolutely now and we're getting close to our, what we've been driving for the last three and a half years. Is it, is it a Portland thing? 
like I know that that far west frontier has that ethos of the people that made it there back in the day were some savages. Don't they have to go through, through like some mountain ranges and it's isolated? Does it toughen the soul and the spirit to be? Ah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, while it firefighting, those are some characters. You really have to stand your ground to to get through a lot of that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's, I don't know, man. It's just the world we live in. We've got to, but I, I definitely have to switch my mentality a little bit and be a little bit more cooperative. I think it's been, because when you're in blockchain space for so long too, like everybody's a scammer. Everybody is a bullshitter. Like a big percentage of people have these beautiful landing pages. There's just time vampires around the world. It's really hard to cut through the bullshit. So sometimes I default to it's bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. And sometimes I'm probably wrong, but yeah, I think, also because it's been so hard, the fundraise, the rebuilding, the hiring. And I think now we're getting to this new phase of take a step back, take a deep breath. We have the funds to get us through sometimes. Let's, let's do this correctly. You said something very important. This is your third bear market. So you already have the lessons. This would be, take a look at my second. You already have the lessons and you know that all the bullshit goes away. In some ways, we're probably like neighbors. I've got my own grumpy lawn next to you. <laughs> Because I have also been very vocal against some of the groupthink and pretending things are going to be right when you know that shit's going to hit the fan dramatically. And I can see the conflict of interest because if I wear a core protocol, I don't really care what is happening. You just want activity and you want momentum. And as critical as it may be about some PFP projects that are more obviously a rug or that may have unrealistic timelines with zero vision or real tech or whatever, the truth is they have kept the community active and they have onboarded people. So it's like a fine balance to strike somewhere, but I can definitely see your point. And I'm wondering whether with the current market conditions and recording this on June 15th for the record, I don't know if a part of you is, yep. I'm still right. <laughs> you can all course correct and feel the pain. Like we're doing the same thing that we've been doing for the last two, three, four years. And not much changes really. In fact, I think you mentioned that the bear market is probably better because it's just more silent. And maybe there's going to be a newfound appreciation for what quality and core infrastructure and like long-term thinking looks like. It's all waves. Before PFPs, it was art. And art came from these crazy experimenters that played around in super rare back in the day. Now that's become less of a thing. Now everyone's in this. And I think you should understand too, we're definitely on the downswing of the PFP excitement. But yeah, one or two or three might actually survive if they actually start giving people real utility past the, take this NFT state, you can get more of our token that does what, I don't know. So to me, even the board eight yacht clubs, like there is a community, there's projects being built off it. As funny as like the Tinder failure was, someone tried to build a Tinder only for board eight yacht club members. To me, like that's, yes. All right. They, not that it was a good idea, but those are the projects that I find interesting that someone's trying to actually build something on top of this sort of base layer, like getting cut in the line access if you're a board eight yacht club to a Miami event or something like that. To me, that's interesting. If you're doing that sort of stuff, then you're welcome. Let's do it. Let's build things. They get extra points for trying. I love people that experiment. Honestly, I don't mind if it fails. I am, I'm fine with failure as long as you're always learning and building upon things. And yeah, I actually had a hilarious, I don't have to tell it. 
the there was a at Eth Denbrook we had the Neo Lounge for several days. And for the last two days, the Neo Lounge ceased to exist and the space became a Buffy Corn VIP builders lounge. So you needed a Buffy Corn NFT. And I wasn't even aware of the change. And I was already inside the Neo Lounge. And I came downstairs to get someone who, for some weird reason, which I didn't get, they didn't have a Buffy corn. So somebody that was already in lent me their phone. So I had a legit Buffy corn to let this person in. I'm already in. And anyway, it was a massive shit fight with the bouncers. And then they wouldn't let me back in. And my computer was inside. <laughs> and I'm like, guys, I'm happy to leave, but at least I have to go retrieve my things. And they still wouldn't let me in. It so they had a check-in process where they had to beep something to verify that they were a user? Did they just show a picture of the buffer? And the bouncers themselves didn't have an idea what a buffer looked like, what an NFT was. Like, that's what annoyed me. Like, people were faking it very blatantly. And so I was trying to do is, things the right way. This is where MintBase is focused. If you are a PFP project, my brain's like, you should have your own smart contract to run off that. And have the dev tools for someone to build a check-in system around your PFP. So this is what we're working on first is getting that sorted. And then we should definitely contact the, I mean, I really hope they didn't do it again. But anyway, the drama was such, I was a little bit angry and they have had anger management issues as a child. James Wall, God bless his soul. He's now left to do, I think he's out of community at Astro. I may be getting that wrong, but he sent me a Buffy corn. <laughs> That's the only thing I've got on the MetaMask on my phone. I'm old school. I do everything in computer. And... Yeah, it was an interesting use case to try to add value to the NFT, but maybe the event got too large and yeah, I think they can definitely improve a few things there. Now, Nate, I think we're getting close to the end. It's been a good round. We've got this thing called rapid fire questions, but I'm extremely lax with enforcement and it often just means second part of the podcast. <laughs> so I've got a few questions and yeah. See how we go. Sure. Are you ready? Yep. So I'm always really curious to see what is going on inside people's minds, especially when they're working on really interesting things, when they've traveled around the world to relocate themselves and the company and whatnot. Are you reading or have you read anything recently that you would recommend to people that you found interesting on any field, or maybe you've watched any documentaries, any TV series, any sort of content that enters your brainwaves? Sure. When the world's crumbling and we got wars happening and pollution and global warming and everything's falling apart, read Factfulness. It's an interesting book that will make you feel less like shit. It's just a book that's talking about how things are being solved and how as technology improves, we actually are doing better, how poverty is becoming less of a thing when you look at different numbers and world hunger is becoming less of a thing and basic needs is, are now being met. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. Podcast, uh, Epicenter Bitcoin, old school. I was listening to Brian, who is a actually created a company called Horus One, which you can stake near on. So he's been running this podcast since forever. It was called Epicenter Bitcoin before we all knew that there'd be other coins, but he's still running it. That's just really good. He's not a developer, but I was shocked when he told me he wasn't a developer. The questions he asks are so dialed in technical, but also not too intense. He did one actually with Ilya and Alex, and he did one with Solana. And I think when you listen to those two, you start to understand what else. Awesome. I'm actually going to try to find, I shared the one with Ilya and Alex recently. 
I'm going to try to find the one with Solana because I feel it's actually something that would be really useful for most people to listen to both and be able to contrast. Because there's also this video, probably getting a bit old now, of the first meetup they had in San Francisco with the Solana guy, Ayatollah, his name is, and Skidinov. And they're just like discussing their approaches to both networks. This is like in early 2020, so very early days. Over beers and pizza, super chill. But that video also was like a mass eye-opener for me on just how the two networks start to differ. Yep. Also, I found the book. It's the factfulness, the reasons we're wrong about the world and why things are getting better than you think by Hans Rosling. Published in 2018. I wonder if it still feels the world's getting better. <laughs> It, it really drives the minus war, obviously, but it just drives into, it's more of a data-driven book than a, yeah. than a feel-good book. It's, yeah. I definitely need to get around it. It's one of those grounding books. Super weird. I'm currently sitting for this cat and there was this book just like randomly waiting for me on mm -hmm. the kitchen table and I was like, mysterious. I started reading and I'm hooked. I'm completely fascinated. For people listening, it's called The Holographic Universe, Michael Talbot. And I thought that it may be like a clickbaity thing. Everyone's talking about the metaverse and whatnot. And then I realized the book was published in 1992. Like the, all the research and studies that it goes into, it's like from physicians, from, sorry, physicists from the University of London and whatnot. Like this has been going on for decades. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, Maybe there's something out there that we don't quite understand or know about. But anyway, that's that's how I tune out at night <laughs> and have I'm the in. weirdest dreams, by the way. <laughs> All right. I'm going to crank on it. <laughs> yeah, definitely do if you can. Awesome. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience? We've talked about the fundraise. You guys have a couple of roles that you're hiring for. I'll put that in the show notes if people are interested. Are there any projects building on Mintbase that you're particularly excited about? Could be live now or up and coming? Yeah. Main thing is if you've deployed a store on Mintbase, go back and mess around with it again. It's undergone several iterations. It is 100 gazillion percent better thanks to a lot of the work that Ruth and Luis Microchip Santiago have been cranking on. And until interoperability is coming to a Mintbase near you and mess around with our system. If you're a developer, we're welcoming you to our developer channel, which is MintDev on Telegram. And just give us a try, docs.mintbase.io. We run into how to interact with our GraphQL indexer and you can have a full system on testnet and mainnet. And so if you want to mint via command line and see it show up on your interface, easy guys, that's about it. And we're hiring. Maybe not, let's see, we have to reassess. Totally understandable, to be honest. Yeah, I realize that probably the easiest way to get hired is to just post on Twitter that Coinbase just laid you off. I don't know if anyone's actually checking, but all those people seem to be getting offers like left, right, and center with very little questions or scrutiny. So kudos to those people. They know how to hustle. Final one, Nate, and I may switch the order when I do the editing. Are there any projects on Near, or could be Aurora or Octopus that you're really excited about? Could be outside of the NFT space, just other players that you're like excited to see them build and for the prospects. I would say I have 
lately just been futzing with all of it, messing around with the pools on rent finance, doing lands, popping around, buying things from Pixel Party all their little bit. I don't think there's one in particular I want to shout out, but it's just everybody who has near tokens, if you're not doing little experiments and minting tokens and adding minters or even messing around with everything. Like that's how what the value is. Yeah. Play around with all the bits. I'm a big AstroDAO fan. So this whole, hey, what's the token mean? I think the day that we can actually start merging code on GitHub from an AstroDAO account, to me, that's the beginning of what a real governance token should look like. And it's totally possible where you can go to AstroDAO and you can hit custom function calls and actually put a proposal up that says mint transfer on mint base or paras. So to me, that's like the beginning of where we're all heading. It's these other independent apps that don't need to ask permission from Mintbase to do whatever they want. And so that's my suggestion. That's pretty wild. That's amazing. Just a couple more things. What I was going to say, and I'll probably edit it somewhere earlier in the podcast is with the Avalanche multi-EVM thing we were talking about, I find it really interesting that when I talked to Shabanko at Ethdenbrook, he said that they're pretty much pretty close to releasing the ability to basically fork our app or launch your own EVM on Near. And the first of those EVMs, it's like privacy centric. It's called Calimero, C-A-L-I-M-E-R-O. So yeah, I think that it may not fit the vision of the world as you have it. And I agree. I do feel the future is awesome, but I see EVMs as being that bridge. And there's certainly a lot of scope for people to deploy things in EVMs that can actually scale. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Aurora or its equivalents, because it'd be EVMs like side by side, scale or near. And well, the other. <laughs> yeah, to me, I just, EVM is PHP in my brain. I just look at it and I just know it's end date and I know it's in its thing right now. And then we're, and it just makes things more complex. But I look at it as, holy crap, that's some crazy engineering. You literally took an EVM and compiled it to Wasm. I mean, that's like the testament of the weird crap we're going to be doing. So I don't hate it because it's an engineering amazement. Do I think it's like going backwards in time? Yes. Doubling it to a private network is what it is. Uh, it is what it is. Look, I, yeah, I respect everyone's efforts. And if it gets us closer to mainstream adoption, I mean, it's a very interesting product mindset. You often have to kill your previous successful product line for the next one to launch. So one of the most common examples is so they had to kill the iPod when they launched the iPhone and the iPod was well successful leader in its category and the iPhone was a gamble and then you've got the app store and off it goes. So I guess that at some point, yes, EVMs may be superseded by the main network, but yeah, I think they are bootstrapping a lot of activity now and, and just capitalizing the developers and whatnot. The second thing was, I really like when you mentioned the role about or the challenges around having your own validators and deploying your own blockchain. Because as I understand it, both Aurora and presumably other EVMs on top and Octopus Network are leveraging the near security model so that you're basically able to run your own app chain and octopus and like lease security, but you don't have to worry about the validators. Do you have any idea of how that looks like? No, no problems if you don't. I know that this is outside of the scope of your work, but I was just curious to talk to a technical mind about this. I'm not touching octopus. I think it's just more of the more why 
like EVM, why it's like, there's a perfectly good running chain that we can explore and do crazy stuff on, but I am, nope, I, I can't go and down the office. It's meant to be, what's a bucketed one? It's supposed to be poked out on, yeah, it's basically poked out on, yeah. Have you ever seen like the Swiss army knife where it's the meme where it's just like one knife, two knives and like something that's super useful, awesome. And then there's the other one that's like this wide with all these things all over the place and it just becomes useless because there's forks and knives all over the place. To me, that's where I see EVM and Octopus. It's, we got one Swiss Army knife that's like killer. We could do so much with. But if other people love all those things and they, you, I don't know. We'll see. Get off my lawn. <laughs> I'm not always right either. Like I know I'm not always right. So obviously it's getting interest. Brave, I think, is going to start messing around with it. So that's neat. But yeah. That's we said more than once during today's show that group thing is really bad and we need to have many points of view and for them to evolve over time. So I'm really excited actually that somebody that is so deep within the new ecosystem is able to not like <laughs> and just not really interact with other parts of the ecosystem. It is up to them to prove what they're doing and to get people to build on them. Yeah, I think a good place to wrap it up cool thanks a lot thanks thanks so much for your time i'm extremely happy we were finally able to get this on and yeah we'll keep in touch neat thanks a lot bye that's the end of another episode as always i just want to thank you for listening because well let's be honest you are amazing and i also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you soon. Bye.